The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, our show is about forgiveness. And you may say, well, gee, Mari, what has that got to do with privacy? Well, In the depths of our soul, in the depths of our mind, we have anger, we have resentments, we have a lot of feelings that interfere with our ability to really um, create a joyful life for ourselves. And so really the lack of forgiveness or the willingness to forgive is really a private issue. So we're going to talk about that today and give kind of a slightly different approach to our privacy. And today we're going to be speaking with Dr. Juliet Rohde-Brown, who is a Ph.D., and her new book is called Imagine Forgiveness, A Guide to Creating a Joyful Future. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Rhody Brown. She is a licensed clinical psychologist, and she is a core faculty member and the director of practicum for a doctoral program in psychology. Juliet has worked with brain-injured individuals and in psychiatric inpatient settings, as well as in community counseling environments and in her own private practice. She respects the many ways of knowing in a diverse social system, the rational, empirical, and intuitive, and she is a founding member and current member of the Sacred Earth Foundation, and you can find out more about that at www.sacredearthfound.org. And she's an advisory board member for the Santa Barbara, California Restorative Justice Neighborhood Initiative. And she's currently the president-elect for Imagery International. And she's spoken internationally on forgiveness and related topics. And some of her research on forgiveness and emotions in the divorcing process is to be published in a uh, journal coming up called the Journal of Divorce and Remarriage. Her book, Imagine Forgiveness, A Guide for Creating a Joyful Future, is available through various popular bookselling venues, probably Amazon.com. She can tell us more. And she has also received a Just Plain Folks Award in 2009 in the self-help genre for her CD, which she created called Feel Forgiveness Now, which is part of a series in collaboration with Shantha Sri and Energy Music. You can go to en. E-R-G-I-M-U-S-I-C dot com to find out more about that. So we're really thrilled to have Juliet with us today. And we uh, know that she lives right up the coast in gorgeous Santa Barbara, one of my very favorite cities. So thank you for joining us, Juliet. 
Oh, you're so welcome, Mari. Thank you for having me today. Well, you know, I, I deal a lot with forgiveness myself. You know, as a mediator for the past 26 years, I have learned that in order to really get beyond the old anger, you have to have some form of forgiveness to really be able to put yourself into the present and to move forward and resolve disputes. Why don't you explain what forgiveness is in, in the definition that you have? Yes, well, I see forgiveness um, based on some of the research I've done and, and some of the clinical work I've done and some of the personal personal work I've done on this. Forgiveness is a process. It's not a technique. It's not an overt act that takes place only in the social realm, but it's a complex process, and it's one in which we can even say ethics. Um, ethics is, is, takes a part. Um, in the process, an individual comes to understand and to respect and to finally kind of adhere to a concept of basic human goodness, if you will. Um, and I follow a definition of forgiveness that has worked for me, and I based some of my research on it. And it's by the psychologists and researchers Enright and Fitzgibbon, Robert Enright. And I actually like to read that definition. It's brief, um, but it's one that I think is is a very powerful definition of forgiveness. Okay. So it it goes like this: um, people, upon rationally determining that they have been unfairly treated, forgive when they willfully abandon resentment and related responses to which they have a right, and endeavor to respond to the wrongdoer based on a moral principle of beneficence, which may include compassion, unconditional worth, generosity, and moral love, to which the wrongdoer, by nature of the hurtful act or act, has no right. You see, so it's not about the person who was did you wrong, um, having a right to forgiveness or not. Uh, they don't really have a right to it. So it's not extended out of any kind of um, cause and effect or tit for tat type of uh, type of gesture. It's it's more about um, an extension of an intention. Mm -hmm. And according to their definition, it, it's a process that has four phases, and I see this, too, in kind of a spiral-like model is the way I envision it. But they say it starts with an uncovering. So, of course, okay, what is it that I want to forgive? And then the decision that I'm going to forgive now. Um, then comes the third part, which is work. You have to work at it. It takes some practices. Mm-hmm. Finally, um, comes a deepening process because it just definitely creates a shift within the person. It creates a shift within you. It, it creates a transformation. It's not a forgetting of the past. It's not a denying of the wrongdoing. But what it is, it's an including of the past, accepting, and also kind of a transforming of the way that we'll be in relationship with ourselves, in relationship with what happened. And, and that goes for self-forgiveness, too. They have a good definition of that, too. But I always look at it as we it does not necessarily require um, reconciliation, forgiveness right. of another. 
But what it but it does when we're talking about self forgiveness, that does have to do with reconciliation with the self, with the self, like coming back to marry the self again, to parent the self again, to say, okay, it wasn't all right what I did. Maybe it was a terrible thing, but I don't have to build my identity around it. And, and I, I can, can change. Compassion. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, I, and I have the mm-hmm. power to change. And that's probably the difference between forgiving someone else and, and forgiving oneself. When you, yeah. when you forgive someone else, you don't have the power to change them. But when you forgive yourself, you do have the power to change yourself. And, and that's not that's easy, but, you know, right you know, I, as I said, I deal with conflict all the time as, a, as an attorney mediator. And there always has to be some level of forgiveness. And, of course, the, the, the more intimate the relationship, whether it's a divorce or partnership that, that we're working on the conflict to resolve the differences, I always have to tell people, and, you know, I'm not doing it in a scholarly way necessarily, but they re- I tell them you have to forgive, not for that other person, but for yourself, to free yourself from this anger, from this resentment, because I, I remember there was a client that I had who had uh, divorced her husband years before, and there were some other issues that came up. And for 10 years, she did not forgive him. Now, he went on and lived his life, and he was happy. And I kept saying to her, your unforgiveness isn't doing anything to him. It's only hurting you. Absolutely. So, so why, why are you doing this to yourself? Why, you know, that's cruelty to yourself. He's living his life. He's happy. He's let it go. You know, you have to let it go. And sometimes you have to say, I remember listening to this tape once on forgiveness, and the woman said, you may have to start out and say, I forgive you, you, you know, SOB. <laughs> yes. And you may have to start out that way until you ingrain it in you that you really, really do forgive. But it's not really, like you said, it's not forgetting. It's not, con- well, it's not condoning because that may be what all. they did. But it is a way of just, you give it up. Forgive means you give it up. Let it yes. go, move on. And, you know, yes, maybe sometimes when you can mutually forgive, you can have a reconciliation. I've had that yes. happen. Yes, it's a nice outcome. It's not the definition, but it can be a wonderful outcome. Right. It can extend into that. Yeah. But it doesn't but necessarily you, have to be. Ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say it doesn't have to be because lots of times you, you have the disillusion and you know, then you don't have to really reconcile like if it's a divorce mediation and you've really forgiven each other, meaning that you give it up and you don't forget what happened and you move on and you can marry someone else, but at least you can then co-parent or you can have a, a, you know, a positive congenial relationship where you can co-parent together and go to weddings together and go to, you know, graduations and not feel this horrible, you know, churning inside when you see the person. Yes. I guess as an attorney, you've, you're familiar with collaborative family law, which is even a different way of going through the divorce process so that it doesn't pit one against the other. And, and of course, the kids are, if there are children involved, they're often the most damaged in the whole scenario. But the yeah. collaborative family law is very intriguing to me. With, with ideally, anyway, what what can happen? And mediation does the same thing. You one one attorney meets with both parties, and then 
reframes everything, helps them to move on to problem solve without getting into the battle, the the court battle. Instead of being positional bargaining, they're looking at problem solving. And and there has to be some forgiveness in lots of discussion. And I'll say, can you can you say you're sorry for what you did that you didn't even maybe know was hurting the other party? And then they'll apologize. And then the other party will say, well, I apologize too. And then that helps to get to the point of forgiveness. It doesn't happen instantly. It, Like you said, you have to work at it and work at it. And, and finally, you get to that point where you realize, you know, the person did the best they could with the tools that they had. And maybe they didn't have the tools that they needed to do the right thing. Yeah, I mean, people generally do the best they can with the resources they have available to them. And, um, and so when you do something like that, Mari, that's wonderful because you, you're actually giving people more resources, more, more ways of knowing, more ways of understanding a situation. Yes. Yeah, and divorce, it's such a... I did a study on divorce, and, and I, I looked at both state and trait anger and how that correlated with the um, capacity to be able to forgive the ex-spouse or the self. And while state anger, uh, well, depression, it was, uh, you know, not surprising the results of that, where, of course, the higher the depression, the lower the ability to forgive. Um, The higher the state anger, the the less ability to forgive the ex-spouse. But what happened with this trait anger piece, which is more of that kind of where we start to build an identity around the anger, we start to have our whole worldview as an angry worldview. And one would think that would affect the uh, capacity to forgive the other more profoundly because it would be this stance of just constant anger at the other, not a passing state-like anger. But what what I found was that it was much more uh, profoundly related to forgiveness of the self, the trade anger piece, that, that piece that gets embedded into our way of being in the world. And so what it told me was that in the divorce process or in, in any kind of conflict, really, the earlier we can sort of try on other ways of responding to our, our, our strong emotions, the, the better. The earlier on we can have mediators like you or, or uh, a good friend or a group to go to or some practices or a, or a good psychotherapist or a spiritual person to talk to or a good social support system. The earlier we can have those types of interventions, if you will, the better before we start to develop a worldview around vengeance hostility, non-forgiveness. Right. It's interesting to find that. And the more that people are angry, um, and they're angry because they feel rejected or they're angry because they feel betrayed by, Mm -hmm. and and this happens in business too. I mean, I I have a business dispute going on right now that the people were in a partnership and it's just like a divorce, even though there's two men that are both married to other people there, it is the same kind of emotions and the anger and the anger really gets in the way of the forgiveness, and the anger really hurts the person who's angry. I mean, yes, very much so. Oh, yeah, much and so. you know, anger in it of itself 
at least it motivates you to take care of yourself, but then to let the anger rule you and not to recognize that, okay, I'm angry for a reason. Now let's find out what the reason is and let's resolve it. You know, if the anger rules you, you know, I see people who get a divorce and they're angry and angry and then they feel that they have no love in their lives. Well, they're keeping love from coming into their lives because they're such angry people. <laughs> yes, and sometimes under underneath that anger is a profound sense of loss because it's not even always anger or a sense of betrayal toward the ex-spouse, but often it's a sense of betrayal about the institution of marriage itself mm-hmm. and all the myths around happily ever after and the way it's supposed to be, the way it should be, based on all the happily ever after myths and and uh, based on the vows that people took. And so I think um, often more deeply is this betrayal of the myth. Yeah. And while it's more difficult to face a profound sense of loss and sadness, it's a lot easier to point the finger and blame and make that anger focused on an object, some kind of person right. or object. Um, but then we can also fall into the, the, the um, trap of falling in love with a grudge. We can be so in love with our grudge, in a way. Um, I use that word, in love, not in the true sense of the word love, but we can... Attached. We can get addicted to yeah, it, right? Yeah, addicted and attached to it. Yeah. Where it becomes your story. It becomes your life, you know? And then you become this victim of this anger and, and right. this unforgiveness. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's funny... Because a lot of times people will say, I'll say, it's really important to forgive, not for the other person or not for the other parties, but really to forgive for yourself to, to you know, help you to release and move on and, and feel free. I mean, freedom is letting go of this unforgiveness. And then people will say, well, I'm, I don't want to forgive this because if I forgive this, then, um, then really I'm kind of condoning it. But what do you feel about that? I see, I see that that's um, a lack of an understanding of what forgiveness really is. Forgiveness is not a passive stance at all. It's, it's a very powerful, um, active stance where people are called on their lack of integrity. Uh, and um, so it doesn't make what happened okay, uh, it, um, but it makes the person um, able to come from a compassionate stance regardless of the fact that some heinous things may have occurred. So it, it's, um, for instance, we can use the image of a child, an innocent child, and uh, we can look at ourselves as uh, that innocent child and remember back an image of us sitting in our high chair with our, in our big innocent eyes looking out and and, and we can look at that parenting if we're going to be the parent now of that child in ourselves. And we're walking up to that child, looking at us, and wanting us to love them and protect them. And if we're protecting that child, we're going to protect that child in a powerful way. But we don't want to poison that child with vengeance and anger and bad models of the way to be in this world together, because we're all in this world together. But we certainly are not going to 
passively allow that child to be um, abused or taken advantage of or get in some kind of an accident because of thoughtlessness. And so if we take that precious child within ourselves and we protect it with, with groundedness, with a sense of empowerment, with a sense of integrity and living by our true values, then we're not going to let anyone or ourselves get away with, with behaviors that are uh, lacking in integrity. A forgiving stance is going to say, with all the compassion in the world, I refuse to participate in this kind of action or in this kind of relationship. However, because I'm large enough um, and I'm doing these practices and I'm noticing how my heart rate is slowing down, I'm noticing I'm calmer, I'm noticing I'm, I'm more grounded, I can come from a larger place of compassion and still say, no, I choose not to participate in that behavior. No, I choose not to enter back into that relationship. Thank you very much. Or if you're, or if you're yeah. in that relationship and you do forgive, uh, you, you can't really forget. It, that leads you to the next level. So if you say, I, I will forgive you, I'm compassionate, I understand you didn't mean to do this, but this takes us to the next level is, what are we going to do if you are going to stay in this relationship? What are we going to do that's going to be different Okay, mm-hmm. so so you're not condoning it. You're saying this is not acceptable. I can't live with this. It's about watching boundaries then, isn't it? Yeah, it's about boundaries because obviously some relationships um, you then do not want to enter back into um, if, there's, if it's a hugely abusive relationship and, and it's going to take time uh, and it can be very dangerous to, to be in that. But let's say there's a relationship that has just kind of um, become more and more toxic. People fell in love, were attracted to each other because of um, maybe some opposite types of qualities. But then those qualities end up gnawing at them, and they take things personally, and pretty soon they're arguing all the time, they're distancing, they're cutting off. Those kinds of relationships, um, can be entered into again if both parties um, agree to do some hard work and to be honest about each of their parts. And again, to not say that it was okay, um, anything that was done that was very hurtful toward the other or oneself, but to say, okay, well, we're on the same page here then. We're coming from this honest um, place of recognizing we've had some really toxic, hard times, but let's see if we can work on this together with some support. Let's say that we're going to do these practices of of forgiveness, of compassion, of not just falling into the knee-jerk reaction of the sarcastic remark or the passive-aggressive act of not showing up on time or something, all those little micro-aggressions that can build up into one huge aggression. Um, but yes, uh, so it doesn't mean always don't go back into a relationship where there's been an, an injury, um, because often the, the most hurtful things happen within the relationships where we have a lot of love. 
and uh, and we do want to stay in those relationships, but we don't want the behaviors to continue. Right. Yeah. Or sometimes, you know, that I see, I'll have people that'll come to me, they've been married maybe 25 years or more, and they would always get to the point where they would say they're sorry to each other, but they really didn't forgive. It, you know what I mean? They would say they're, they've forgiven. I've forgiven you so many times. Well, did they really forgive? And if they forgave, were, did the other party expect them to forget? <laughs> That's the problem mm. is that people <laughs> don't know that when you are sorry or and you do want forgiveness or you want to forgive, something has to change. In other words, you have to get to the next step, which is, what did I do that hurt you? If I don't, if I want to maintain a relationship with you, then what must I do? What must we do in terms of changing attitudes, the way we speak to each other, the way we handle each other? What do each of us need to do? And that's when you have to get to the problem solving stage if you mm-hmm. do want to maintain that relationship. And even with kids, I mean, obviously, you know, I, I have kids that are in their 20s and there have been things where I've had to forgive, but I've also had to set some boundaries about, yeah, I'm going to forgive you for this. And what, what, is you, what are you going to do differently so that this doesn't happen again? And what am I going to do differently so that this doesn't happen again? And so if, if you can't get to that point where you can make new agreements as to how to deal with each other so that those ways of hurting each other aren't repeated... Um, if you can't do that, then, th- you know, then it may be time to end that relationship. Mm-hmm. Yes. So yes, what about... I agree with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about anger, though? Um, what What about anger? Does anger mask other emotions that are going on? It can. Anger is a natural human emotion, of course. And as you pointed out earlier, Mari, what you do with it is the crucial piece. Um we can act responsibly with anger and be honest about it, or we can deny it and let it fester inside us, or we can project it out and have very destructive behaviors that can destroy many, many different lives. Uh, but it does often mask um, a sense of loss, a sense of deep sadness, a sense of a life um, that was hoped for, relationship that was hoped for um, and it didn't happen uh, or it didn't work out a job it didn't work out even a political um, vision that that didn't work out and um, it it just feels a lot easier to get angry in a projective type of way in a vengeful type of way than to than to honor the sense of loss and to be okay with that because it will pass if, if we're honest with what we're truly experiencing and feeling, not a mood, but a feeling. And we watch it, we pay attention in a mindful way to be very present to that loss. It's kind of a beautiful thing in a way. Um, and, and then it moves and it changes. And we'll also notice that within that spectrum, there's, there's some joy there too. We'll find it if we're really paying attention to ourselves moment to moment. Um, but if we get caught in the kind of the spinning and ruminating, angry, vengeful pattern, then we 
we become blind. I think of the Furies in mythology who say something like, bring, oh, there was a union analyst, Sherry Salmon, who wrote a piece about that, and, and she talks about the Furies in mythology and vengeance and something like, you know, they'll, they'll, they don't care if they go with it, but they'll bring the whole house down. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yes. That kind of thing. Well, you know, I see that when people come to me and they're very, very angry and we talk about it and talk, I'll ask them to talk about that anger just, you know, in a, in a very controlled way within the session so the other party can, can hear. Not yelling at the other person, but I'll say, what are you angry about? Help me understand your anger. And when they really go into it and delve into it, it goes back to hurt, like you said. Yeah. That anger is really hurt or lost from the past. And when they go deep enough, they start to cry. And that crying or that real deep sadness, and I'm talking about men and women that do this yeah. in my session, and it's very private, so it's okay to, to be real and true and, and, you know, reveal themselves in that way because it's a very protected process, which I'm mm-hmm. sure you're used to. When they do that, then they get back to that hurt and then they can when they deal with the hurt rather than the anger it seems like it's a little bit easier to deal with to understand the true nature of where that anger came from yes it's it's a kind of a relief for people isn't it and then for the partner or ex-partner there's more of a heart-centeredness too to see somebody in their pain and loss rather than to constantly hear attack right it's easier um, and, and to so hear. There's something kind of beautiful about it, even though it's it's sad. Of course, it's difficult to be with. But um, you know, uh, something I say to clients a lot is it resonated with me when I when I first heard it, read it in the famous um, late uh, developmental psychologist Eric Erickson talked about depression as um, a paradise, you know, a nostalgia for a paradise forfeited. Uh, Nostalgia for a paradise forfeited. Isn't that a yeah. powerful statement? It, it is. It is. Yes. Yeah. We are speaking with Dr. Juliet Rody brown who is a licensed clinical psychologist, and she is the author of a new book called Imagine Forgiveness, A Guide to Creating a Joyful Future. I think in a when we're talking about privacy and the show is about all sorts of different types of privacy, that forgiveness is such a private thing. You know, it, um, when you hear about people who are able to forgive someone like maybe a drunk driver that killed their young child or, you know, in the Holocaust, the victims who were able to forgive, uh, their, their, you know, torturers or whatever, you, you just have to be in awe for that kind of private yet very um, public way of of releasing that anger, it it just I'm in awe for people who can do the kind of forgiveness where someone has you know maliciously hurt someone else. You know sometimes we we hurt someone and we're really oblivious. You know and then when we find out we feel terrible and we're we when we understand it. But then there are those people who do it maliciously. And when you can forgive someone who has hurt you maliciously, that's probably the highest level of forgiveness, don't you think? Yes, I do think so. Absolutely. Very well said. 
I, I think of um, in Santa Barbara here, there's um, a beautiful show that Elizabeth Wolfson developed called Portraits of Survival, and it's Holocaust victims who um, are telling their stories, and someone did some beautiful um, black-and-white photographs of them, uh, and they, they had their stories, and some of them go into the community and talk about forgiveness and talk about their lives. And um, a couple of them have begun to work with some of the gang kids in town. Mm. Um, And it's just a beautiful thing to turn that around when one has had um, horrible, horrible um, violence. And what you're just talking about when it's directed at them in a very deliberate way and they can forgive and they can share that and try to be generative to those coming up in the world who may have gotten um, caught up in that same kind of gang mentality where the group rules and people forget. They forget their heart. They forget themselves. They, like the Nazis did, you know, right. get caught up in this horrible, ugly, ugly mentality. And so to try to intervene... Um, and do something back, give something back in the world. It's just beautiful. I've met several of these people, and we did a little um, diversity and dialogue through the arts um, where for the community um, where um, we had a couple of people speaking, and um, it was beautiful. So I really I agree with you that um, it's one thing when we're forgiving a friend or family member or someone who didn't mean to do something, uh, but it nevertheless was hurtful. Um, or the drunk driver who was drunk and shouldn't have been driving. Uh, but then when it's deliberate and when someone has directed violence, directed undermining, um, anything like that, and then the person can come around and forgive, that truly is the highest level of of consciousness, of a spiritual existence, and if if each and every one of us on this planet could be so noble, yeah. this world would be a much better place. Exactly. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, your host of Privacy Piracy, and we are speaking right now with Juliet Rohde Braun, who is a Ph.D., and she's the author of Imagine Forgiveness, A Guide to Creating a Joyful Future. You know, I know many of us in our lives have been through times where we had to forgive, you know, especially those of us who've been through divorce or, you know, if someone has um, died and it's been something that they really, you know, shouldn't have died in terms of the way that somebody else caused that death, whether it was negligence or or malicious. Um, so we've all been through times where we've had to forgive or we don't forgive, you know. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you, what are some, when we don't forgive, okay, when we hold these resentments, when we hold this vengeance, what are the hidden health hazards? Okay, well, um, hostility can be a form of a way, another way of saying non-forgiveness. And if we have that kind of angry, hostile, non-forgiving um, type of uh, experience going through our body, it's creating a continuous release of stress hormones. You know? And this has been looked at in different studies. Uh, the 
here, even with our body's DNA repair system, and we can lose our first line of defense against a number of diseases. Um, cancer. So, yeah, cancer. You know, it, yeah, they say I'm that. sorry? I was going to say cancer. And yes. I remember. Uh, and that doesn't mean that those people who are listening who have some of these that it came about because you're a hostile person or you're no, no, not no, forgiving. No, no. But I, I really want to emphasize to listeners to not make that conclusion right. or think that we're saying that. But what what we are saying here, what you and I are discussing, your immune is system, that, yeah, gets depleted. Hmm, right, right. Sure, because think about it. If we just take a moment and um, we tense our bodies up and we tense our jaw up. We kind of put our shoulders up and make fists, and we just anyone anyone listening, just try that for a moment. If you're in a place not driving where you can, tense up your jaw, tense everything out, just tense every muscle in your body, and that's kind of like what it's like to hold on to hostility. And if you let that go and just take a breath and let it all go, take a couple of breaths and feel that release. Just imagine what that's doing to your blood flow. Notice how your breath probably then moves more to your belly. And the breathing through the belly calmly, the blood flowing nicely, smoothly through the body, that's healthy, and that's going to um, promote uh, a more um, a better climate for, for uh, the neurons and everything else to, to flow in. But um, yeah, so the, so the when your yeah. heart, you know, can affect the heart in a terrible way. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So so when you're when you're filled with this pain, you know, of anger and unforgiveness and vengeance, y- your your body is listening in. Every cell is listening into what you're thinking, <laughs> and it really affects you, um, obviously, and depletes your immune system. People can get I notice that happens a lot with even with my own clients who, you know, I've been doing this 26 years and I when they are so angry, they are more likely to get sick. And it's because of the stress. And I've seen it, you know, over the years, I see it all the time. I tell them you really need to let go of this. You need to resolve this. You need to resolve it in in your heart and soul and in the cords, you know, outside the cords. And you need to get this done because it's it's really going to kill you. It's killing you. Oh, yes. Oh, I know. It's pretty clear now. Anyone can Google the effects of stress of cortisol. And when that's pumping through our body, it's just destroying everything. Yes. And so, like you say, if, we're, if we come at this with trying to have some practices of uh, loving kindness, meditation is one way, practice, mindfulness practice. We then provoke the parasympathetic system, and that literally calms and soothes the body. It makes everything work more efficiently and can sustain our health rather than impairing it. So if we can work toward cultivating a feeling of love, of safety in ourselves first, and we're the only ones who can do that for ourselves, then that encourages us to extend that love and safety outwards as well. And some people find, you know, some people can meditate. Other people mm-hmm. find a great deal of solace in in prayer with, in you prayer, know, yes. in, in yeah, any absolutely. kind of spiritual practice. Those are things, yeah. you know, 
I mean, for me, I know that when things are really crazy, I say, you know what, let go, let God, you know, just, I, yeah. I, I turn it yeah. over, you know, because it's just something I know it's beyond my help <laughs> or beyond uh-huh. my power. And I just have to say, you know what, I just trust the universe. I trust God. I trust whatever it is. And you don't have to, you know, we're not talking, it could be religious, but it doesn't have to be. It could just be a spiritual way where you're communing with nature, but somehow to get out of that insanity and get centered, right? Yes, absolutely. Yes. And it doesn't matter what it is, as long as it brings you to your heart, your heart centeredness. Uh, We talk of heart because that's the part that's destroyed. The first part that's destroyed by hostility is a cardiovascular, so it's literally the heart as an organ, but also the metaphor of the heart. It's kind of the heart brain, if you will. And if we have prayer or meditation or or deep um, wilderness walks in nature, music, we have relationships that do this. Um, it's it's wonderful to to have ways that we can remind ourselves and slow down and practice and. Uh, you know, Maslow and other psychologists from the early days of psychology said things about when we make a change in ourselves, um, well, then um, we make a change in, in everyone. Um, we That extends into our community. And then the more people in a community who are coming from a loving place, the, the ideal is then that community builds. It's not just a microcosm anymore. It's a macrocosm. And that used to sound like a very nice um, idea to those who were skeptical about it. But um, now, today, we actually have some ways of even measuring neurons. We have something Daniel Goleman talked about, mirror neurons, and Dan Siegel talked about um, attunement and other people talk about entrainment, which came from physics, this term. And it's how when one person is really resonating in, in a very loving way, we catch on to that. It's contagious. And likewise, if somebody's very negative, it's contagious. Exactly. And they have ways of really measuring this now with all the technology. We can see the neurons firing and um, with... Um, with love, with empathy, we can see this, these, the ways that it works and colors in our body. And it's beautiful for those who kind of like to have some kind of tangible proof right. <laughs> over some things. Exactly. You know, I remember the studies that um, I had read a lot of books by Deepak Chopra, who's, a, you know, an MD who's very uh, spiritual and, and yeah. body, mind, spirit and all that. And the studies that, that uh, this training I took with him, he talked about these Harvard studies showing that when people meditated, you know, high-powered business people, that um, their, their whole blood system improved, their, their heart rate improved, the people who were on heart medicine could go off the heart medicine. So mm-hmm. this body-mind um, I- interaction is it's not just uh, hocus-pocus, it's, it's real stuff. And no, and, no, and also, not just the California New Age idea. But no, no. And when they did studies about people, you know, meditating in a community, the the crime rate went down. You know, in various mm-hmm. cities that they tried this. So, you know, it it is important. It's not easy to do. It's like when you were talking about, you know, when someone walks into the room and they're real agitated, 
you know, it changes the dynamics and the energy in the room. Yes. And when somebody walks in like the Dalai Lama, (laughs) him walks in, um, it just, everybody changes, you know, when someone Mm. is really centered like that. Um, Mm. I remember taking a a class with Dr. Brian Weiss. I don't know if you know who he is. He's a, yeah, he's a psychiatrist, um, that teaches about past lives and, and, um, you know, does hypnotherapy. And I took a a full day training with him. And when I walked in the room and there were a couple hundred people in there and he was talking with people, you could just feel this soothing energy emanating from him. So there, mm-hmm. you know, you, you know, I don't read auras or anything like that, but I could surely feel this difference of someone who was really grounded like that. It was just amazing to me. And just imagine what we could do with the world if, you know, if people could get like that. It's, I don't think it's, it's an easy thing to do. I think I've been working at it for a long time myself. Oh, we all have, <laughs> you know, we're, we're all in this together, aren't yeah. we? And we do what we can, like you said earlier, with the resources that we have. And that's why, you know, that's why I wrote a book like this, because it's something that has worked for me and for other people I've worked with. And and I'm just, I'm not a guru or anything like that. I'm just an average person who happens to have done some studying to become a psychologist. and, And I'm just trying to share something, but not to imply that it's, it's so easy and and gee, you know, you should be doing this because look how easy it is. It's it's not. It it takes time. Although some people do have aha experiences, and it can forgive, forgiveness can happen like that, in, in a in just kind of a, a a huge realization. But for most of us, average folks, it's um it takes some time. It's it's kind of I like to again use this spiral model where. It's not like we get on the escalator and we just go up nice and smooth, nice and linear to this place of forgiveness. It's more like a spiral where we come up a little bit and we gain some insight, maybe some new ways of of, um, understanding ourselves and behaving. We might dip back a little bit and then we come back again and we spiral up again. But each time we're coming up again on that next curve of the spiral, even though we might dip back a little bit, if we're being mindful, if we're really paying attention to our process, we will notice that we're making progress every single day. And sometimes it's just a matter of stopping ourselves, checking in, and um, and giving us ourselves the credit and the, and the beauty of, of recognition of where we are in that moment. Right. And just that practice in and of itself is a movement toward a more forgiving, a more forgiving, more compassionate stance toward ourselves. And, and you that know, then and, influences the world. Right. And, you know, we, we are in charge of our private thoughts. People don't think that they are because we kind of let our thoughts go. But in reality, every single one of us are in charge of our private thoughts so that mm-hmm. if a negative thought comes in or a hateful or a, you know, a vengeful thought comes in, we actually have the power to say, I don't want to think like that. I don't we want, do. I'm, I'm going to, re- I'm going to replace it. It's, you know, it's a matter of like what you were just saying a second ago. It's a matter of staying conscious of our own thoughts. You have to like, 
the 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 thinker must watch what the thinker's saying <laughs> you know <laughs> kind of mm-hmm. like when we think something we have to be mindful like what you were talking about and conscious of what we're thinking because if we change that thinking we will be able to forgive i i remember just recently one of my clients who had a lot of a lot of pain in her divorce and um there was um you know her husband was unfaithful and it was a very very painful situation for her and um she started to really be conscious of her thoughts and when the negative thoughts came in or the thoughts of her uh, husband with this other person came in she would literally stop herself and replace that thought with a different thought and finally one day you know she called me and she said you know it just happened i finally let it go i finally Mm. am free i'm finally at that point of peace of heart peace of mind and it it took that consciousness that you're talking about to literally listen to your thought and say wait a minute i don't want to think that i i refuse to think that i'm going to replace that thought with another thought and so that's what kind of reminded me of when you talk in your book about imagining forgiveness why don't you talk a little bit about that Yes, that's it's a great lead-in to the to the word imagine, and I I didn't just choose that word because it sounds nice. Um, you're really tapped into how powerful that word is, and I I I use the word imagine because I believe that imagination is one of our most powerful powerful resources, and um, I like to think of a. Um, a, a statement that um, Piero um, Fiorucci said something about how we can make um, the images, either we can become their prisoners or we can use them for our um, improving our future. I can't remember the exact quote actually right now, but it was a beautiful one. Um, but anyway, when we worry and when we ruminate, we're being very masterful, masterful with our imagination, but we're doing it in a negative way. And if we're a worrier or a ruminator, well, we can look at ourselves as being very powerful people, very powerful um, imaginations we have. So why don't we turn those around? And I use imagine in my book as um, an acronym for the first letters of each chapter. So I say the first one, imagine, considering forgiveness. And then the second chapter, um, the M stands for metta and mindfulness. And metta means loving kindness and Pali language and mindfulness, what we were talking about earlier, and forgiving ourselves. And then it's really through our feelings that we can begin to um, sense forgiveness and so the A is for activating forgiveness through feelings. And then the G is for grounding forgiveness in our body. And then the practice of forgiveness, the I, is inventing a joyful future with imagery. And then the N for nurturing intention through ritual, through some kind of ceremony, some kind of practice. And then finally the E, engaging forgiveness, engaging it in global neighborliness in a more collective forgiveness way. But we don't just 
often we look at imagination as being playful or something that children do um, or something that's less serious than some other way of working with ourselves. But really, it, it all starts with the imagination. That is the place that we conceive of things. That's the place that we um, have the idea. That's the place that we get inspired. And then it, it starts with this vision of what we can be and how we can respond differently, and then we put it into action. But we can't have blind actions without the vision, and the vision comes from the imagination. And I have just seen the power of, of imagery work in so many different realms. I mean, it's used in sports medicine. It's used in medical realms and surgery. It's used with trauma. It's used um, on so many different levels, and I think it's very, very powerful to use imagery and the imaginal process in the process of forgiveness as well. Yes. It, it is amazing how we can create our reality when mm-hmm. we do, when we see it like a movie in our head. I remember way back in college, I dated um, a guy who was a, an Olympic diver and, uh-huh. uh, you know, he was, he was going to the Olympics and he dove for the air force as well. And one of the things I'll never forget, he told me, and I was like a sophomore in college, and he would say to me, I'd say, how do you get up and do these, you know, triple things off the 10-meter board, and how do you create these incredible dives? He goes, I see it in my head a thousand times before I actually try it. Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. I thought that always really resonated with me that, you know, he was only, I don't know, 19 years old, and he, and he went on to do great things, and... Um, but I remember him saying that, that, you know, when you want to try something new, you have to visualize it. And I remember after that, when I wanted to really learn to do be a better snow skier, I would watch these snow movies. I would rent these movies on snow skiing. And I did become an expert skier. So, oh, you, know, it, you know, it really works. It's like what the, the name of the book that I read years ago, Creative Visualization, which is we do create. And people who are inventors create it in their mind before it ever gets on the paper. So with forgiveness, we also can see ourselves talking with the person who, you know, we have to forgive or just moving on, giving them, blessing them and saying, you know what, you did the best you could have a good life and I'm moving on. I mean, you can, you can visualize all of that and it, you know, it doesn't, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to do it. You just, you know, all of us can visualize walking on the beach with the sun shining down with the, you know, the dolphins in the ocean. If I, if I give you a whole, you know, a uh, little story, you can see it in your own mind's eye. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. so and it's not hard. It, even as Im- visual, they can feel it. They can sense it, smell, taste, Right. Hear with sound, um, touch. There, there are so many wonderful ways of, of using the word imagery. It doesn't have to also mean just the visual. But what you're saying is, even when you were describing that, Mari, I'm, I'm very uh, suggestible, and, and I was going there, you know, to, I was feeling the sunlight on Sure. So, uh, <laughs> it, we just, if we allow ourselves to open, to, to go with the imagination and where it can take us, and we use our um, our skill and our, our, our even our reason, if we will, that part of ourselves to then help direct that in a in a in a more nurturing way for ourselves and others. And it's just amazing how our imagination can be put to use. And you can, you know, sometimes I tell people in my mediation, you know, just if they're really having trouble forgiving and letting go, 
I tell them, you know, just imagine yourself released from that pain. Just, you know, imagine like this is this heavy thing you're carrying on your back, you know, and it's just Mm -hmm. wearing you down and it's, and it's nasty and you feel nasty and just, you know, it's all that anger that you're carrying for a long, long time. Just take it off and put it next to you on the floor and just Mm -hmm. say goodbye to it and let it go and just see how, how comfortable you feel. Like you're not carrying this huge weight around. Just how does mm-hmm. that feel to let it go? Can you just, can you allow yourself to let it, if you feel what it feels like to be free from that, you know, and then they, they go, yeah, you know, so they, it, 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 it is, it is something that you have to be very conscious of, but, um, but it is so wonderful. And we want to make sure that people know that they can find out more about your book, Imagine Forgiveness, a guide to creating a joyful future. And we all want joy in our lives. We all want happiness. Of course. Yeah. Well, we have about uh, just about another minute left. Can I just ask you one last question? What type of future research do you envision around the topic of of forgiveness? Some of it is already being uh, conducted, I think. And well, I know. And it's with mirror neurons. And um, this idea of mirror neurons is um, that I think some Italian researchers first um, came across this when they notice a monkey um, responding to somebody having an ice cream cone. And then they say, if we scratch our head, we can, if we see someone scratching their head, we can sort of feel that scratching of the head ourselves. Even uh, Ramachandran over at UC Irvine, where you are, has done work with uh, phantom limbs, with people who've lost limbs. And, and, that's even a mirror neuron effect in a sense. I think that in terms of forgiveness, we're going to see a lot more work um, done in these tangible, technological ways of seeing what we can do. Um, and, and, and now already imagery is being used for reducing prejudice and things like that. And in terms of forgiveness, though, I, I can really see it going into the realm of the neurosciences. Well, that is fascinating. Yeah, that's fascinating stuff. It would be wonderful if we could use that with, you know, various religions and the Middle East crisis and, you know, all the things that are going on in this world. If we could really get to that higher consciousness where we could all forgive each other and move on and understand each other would be really wonderful. But we want to. Yeah. Do you want to give your website before we go? Sure. I can be found at www.drjrb.com. And so we can have people. And and let me ask you something. So can they find this book on Amazon or? Yes, Amazon, BarnesandNoble.com. Okay. Those um, are the, yeah, I, those are the two. All right. So it's Imagine Forgiveness, A Guide to Creating a Joyful Future by Juliet Rody Brown, Ph.D. Thank you so much, Juliet. We will be looking for your future books and articles and we'll be watching for you. So. Thank you very much for joining us. Okay, Mari. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. You too. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. right here on KUCI. Also, visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. See our upcoming guests. You can see their pictures, their bios, jump to their websites. And, of course, you can listen to archived interviews and download the podcast, and please write us an email about what's important to you in the information age or ask us questions. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you.
stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.